Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is September the 6th. It's early afternoon in the San Francisco Bay Area, the heart of the technological revolution. Uh, it's Labor Day, September the 6th, although I guess for the denizens of Silicon Valley, either they're replacing labor or they work all the time. So uh, I'm not sure how appropriate Labor Day is in Silicon Valley. Uh, I've been doing, many of you know, I've been doing this show for years. It originally, um, be, it began, it originated on on the TechCrunch show, um, on TechCrunch.com, which is the leading uh, network, news network for tech and startups in the Bay Area and indeed around the world. Uh, in 2016, uh, which seems uh, a century ago, when it's actually only five years ago, I interviewed a young man called Joshua Browder for a series I was doing called uh, Innovate 2016 on uh, TechCrunch. Um, he is uh, the CEO of Do Not Pay. He's a, he, he was at Stanford, and he's a typical uh, tech startup entrepreneur. Uh, the, the interview I did got reported on another website, and it says that uh, Do Not Pay creator Joshua Browder said that the bot he had created on donotpay.com had helped users appeal over twenty uh, four million dollars in parking tickets in just a few months. Um, the whole point of do not pay is a bot for uh, paying parking tickets. Essentially, uh, where well, they describe themselves as the world's first robot lawyer. Uh, in, in justifying this, I guess in ethical terms. Uh, uh, young Browder is a lovely guy. He said, uh, he told me, I think the people getting parking tickets are the most vulnerable in society. Uh, these people aren't looking to break the law. Uh, I think they're being exploited as a revenue source by the local government. So I was particularly intrigued when I picked up a, an important new book on how the tech revolution has gone wrong. It's entitled System Error where big tech went wrong and how we can reboot. It's by three distinguished uh, academics at Stanford University. Um, and I was intrigued that the book begins with Joshua Browder, of all people. Uh, I'm going to do interviews with each of the authors of the book. And, and the first guy I'm talking to um, is my guest today, uh, Rob Reich, or Rob, I, I made the error, Rob. You knew I was going to do it. Rob Reich, uh, although it, it looks like Reich. Um, he is the co-author of System Error. He's also a professor of political philosophy in the political science department at Stanford. Uh, Rob, apologize for the rather long-winded intro. Why did you choose to start the book with reference to Joshua Browder? Why does it seem to me, at least in terms of reading the book, that Browder captures what's gone wrong with the Silicon Valley revolution? Yeah, that's the spirit of it. Our guess in writing the book is that most people haven't yet heard of Joshua Browder, but the story he tells about Do Not Pay 
seems to us uh, kind of emblematic about what we describe as a kind of wrong turn in Silicon Valley. And the you know standard issue story of a, a kid who comes to Stanford with a, a startup idea, to the best of my knowledge, he was thinking about and working on do not pay before he even got to Stanford, um, stopped out or dropped out, um, although I think he's eventually graduated uh, um, in order to create the company with all kinds of investment capital. And the story he told us, um, in fact, that I think he tells quite um, happily in public, maybe he told you too back in 2016, is that uh, he had gotten a bunch of parking tickets back in London, um, felt outraged and irritated by them, and so created this automated system to try to make it possible to get out of paying them, um, hence the name of the, the, the site, Do Not Pay. And uh, I recall asking him, uh, well, does the, does the automated system distinguish between legitimately issued and illegitimately issued parking tickets? And the answer to the best of my knowledge is no, it can't do that. All it can do is optimize the grievance procedure um, and then make it as easy as possible to submit that grievance and succeeds in then getting many people out of parking tickets. And so uh, I recall uh, asking him things like, oh, well, you've, you've created something that systematically diminishes municipal revenues. And um, <laughs> I recall him sort of you know, blankly uh, looking at me, not really understanding what I meant. And I explained, well, you know, parking tickets are a, a form of revenue for different cities. And um, not only that, but they also you know, might fund a variety of different municipal projects. They are a form of traffic control in various ways. Um, sure, there's, they're an inconvenience to people, uh, but they're um, there perhaps for a reason, um, or I want to say they are there for a reason. And in the opening pages of the, of the book, we tell the story of Joshua Browder as a way of suggesting you know, what What seems like a great idea at the start, um, make a little automated system to help you avoid paying a parking ticket as an irritation, brought to scale as a way then in whatever the number of cities where this system now works, um, uh, has a bunch of downside or downstream consequences that aren't obviously great. And Joshua Browder might have a good story to tell. We're not trying to paint him as a, a kind of particularly malevolent figure or a person who is, you know, has bad intentions. To the contrary, the reason the book opens with him is because he's rather um, symptomatic or just stereotypical. Someone with an interesting idea funded by Silicon Valley with an impetus to bring it all to scale as quickly as possible. And you know now the idea behind do not pay is to get rid of lawyers as well. And right. So uh, as, as, as I said, a, a good uh, a good subject to talk about on on Labor Day, which is supposed to celebrate labor. You're being very kind, Rob. Maybe because Joshua is a nice young man. Maybe because he's a graduate of Stanford. But there are some ethical contradictions here as well, which we all know about. Uh, uh, the, the latest valuation uh, from Andreessen Horowitz, the leading VC who invested in Joshua's startup, uh, I think it's from July of this year, is $210 million, of which, of course, he's going to get very rich if he's not already very rich. Um, so this idea that he's doing it or doing do not pay in the name of humanity is obviously absurd. 
There's something else as well. Uh, Joshua Browder co-authored a, a piece on the Andreessen Horowitz website called The Hustler's Guide to Suing the Man. This kind of libertarian disregard for authority and the rules. And my sense about system error, Rob, is that you're critical of that, that you're critical of this libertarian ethos of philosophy in Silicon Valley, this idea that that everyone should be a hustler, everyone should challenge the status quo, that disrupting the world is by definition a good thing. That's right. Um, You know, if I had to reduce it to a kind of formula... Uh, the, the, the idea in, in the early part of the book in terms of a diagnosis of how we got into the mess we're in is that the... And it's a big mess, isn't it, Rob? This is not a minor mess. Correct. It's a big mess. It's a big mess. We're all familiar with the tech clash now that identifies all the various problems. And I can tick them off, but I'm sure our listeners are aware of the misinformation, disinformation, data privacy abuses, um, and so on and so forth. So the, the spirit of the book, the formula is... Technologists bring to the table an optimization mindset. And when you couple an optimization mindset with the founder's typical ideology, and we give evidence in the book that this is so, not just an impression, uh, that the founder's ideology tends to be libertarian. And so you get the optimization mindset applied to a libertarian founder you know, vision, which is to say you're optimizing for the minimizing of government. And that, when it's brought to scale, as big tech has done, is, a, is what produces, we think, a toxic kind of mess. Regulation is a loaded word for something that um, in a democratic society is nothing more than the set of collective preferences we funnel through our elected representatives to bring about what's in the common interest. And we tell in the book a history of previous emerging technologies that achieved great disruption and great scale, which were eventually shown, as we are now seeing with big tech, to have all kinds of, use the language of an economist here, negative externalities or more simply unintended consequences and social harms and individual harms. That's where we are right now with big tech. And regulation is just a way to try to harness the benefits for society and individuals and minimize these harms. And when you get something like a founder ethos of sticking it to the man, um, that's you know what I would characterize as a kind of uh, blinkered ambition of the technological founder who systematically disregards the broader social interest. And Again, I don't. I don't want to say that Joshua Browder is in any way, um, um, you know, particularly problematic. No, he's just, not, and he's a not. Uh, last time I talked to him, I, I found him actually very charming, very interesting. Like no. me, he's British exile, come over to America. But there are grown-ups involved in this as well. You write about. Um, you write about uh, the, the 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 Y Combinator innovation. Um, uh, fund and the founder of that is Paul Graham, uh, who's sort of notorious as a defender of hacking. He even wrote a, a best-selling book, Hackers and Painters. You're not keen on the hacker ethic, are you? Or even if I, I, maybe that's a contradiction in terms. Maybe hack, hackers don't have ethics. Well, I think actually there's an interesting story to be told about how. You know, the hackers who once fashioned themselves as Davids against the Goliaths 
Um, that's that countercultural um, you know, root of Silicon Valley. Um, the hackers have now become the Goliaths. And with it, that extraordinary form of power comes a, a necessarily a different sense of social responsibility. And that hacker ethos of sticking it to the man, if indeed that was what it once was, um, it, it just has to be updated for an age in which the technologists amongst us nowadays can exercise as much power and control over so many aspects of our lives from, from our work lives to our educational lives into our personal lives and how it is that we, we live online. Uh, so that just seems to me uh, you know, almost an uninteresting observation. A hacker ethos is a, is a fine thing when it's done at small scale, but at large scale, which is what Silicon Valley has now achieved, um, it's a different set of questions. And we see all of the downside consequences of, of, of a kind of blinkered ambition to scale as quickly as possible and you figure out the ethical or social consequences afterwards. Um, Josh Brad is still around. He's the founder of a, of a successful startup. Um, the other young man you, you begin your book with is not around and his story is much sadder. Yeah. Uh, you refer to somebody called Aaron Schwartz. Uh, some people, especially insiders of in Silicon Valley, know him very well. Most people won't. Tell me about Schwartz and why is he interesting in terms of this system error uh, yeah. and how big tech or perhaps all tech has gone wrong recently? Yeah, so the book starts with these very short profiles of these two young men, Joshua Browder and then Aaron Schwartz. Both of them went to Stanford. Uh, both of them um, immediately interested at an early age in computer science and acquiring these extraordinary technical skills that you can these days through computer science. Aaron Schwartz, though, we describe as a kind of you know hinge event, um, a kind of turning of the page in Silicon Valley because when Swartz was an undergrad at Stanford, he dropped out. He went through the early Y Combinator stage. He was partly responsible. Yeah, and uh, sorry to interrupt, um, uh, Rob, but uh, uh, Graham, who we talked about as, as one of the fathers of, of the libertarian philosophy, gave, uh, gave Schwartz the, uh, the title of co-founder of Reddit, which obviously is quite a compliment. Yeah, that's right. And you know, the little graphic you just showed there as a teenager, he was responsible, partly responsible for, for the RSS, real simple syndication. Um, he was an initial creator along with Larry Lessig, a distinguished law professor of the Creative Commons licensing. And the point here is that he saw the skills that he could acquire as a technologist as being ideally deployed for various civic purposes. Um, he wasn't first and foremost in becoming a unicorn or starting a unicorn company. That was almost accidental uh, when you look at his biography about what happened with, with, with Reddit. And um, the tragic end that, that you know, he came to uh, where he, he ended up um, um, committing suicide as a result of being put under investigation and then criminal trial for having effectively downloaded um, a bunch of social science articles um, through MIT's open access uh, system to JSTOR, a kind of collection of articles online, and uh, was, was held to criminal account for that um, and really put him into a tailspin, evidently. Um, and you know, we talk about that in the book, too. And the book ends with another kind of hero that, that I would point to in the current day, uh, the sort of person I wish more more students that we we encounter at Stanford would aspire to, uh, Audrey Tang, the the digital minister in Taiwan. Um, at a minimum, 
you know, the story or the contrasting stories there of, of yeah. Joshua Browder and Aaron Swartz, um, and then Audrey Tang at the end of the book. We need an alternative pantheon for our youngest technologists so that they have um, different types of heroes um, beyond the obvious, the Zuckerbergs, the Reed Hoffmans, the Peter Thiels, and so on. Um, and they can see an alternative pathway. That alternative pathway that was so obvious even just 10, 15 years ago no longer seems as obvious um, to the 20-year-old at Stanford that we encounter because now the Silicon Valley venture capital system has become so baked in and the Joshua Browder story is the emblem of that for us. Rob, what degree of responsibility do you think that the, the fathers, and they tended, perhaps not uncoincidentally, to be fathers of this philosophy? You mentioned Larry Lessig. Uh, Aaron Schwartz was a, um, a mentor of, of Lessig. Um, Lessig uh, is well known as a, an activist, the author of uh, Code and Other Laws of Cyberspace, um, and the father of the Creative Commons. I've crossed swords with Lessig over the years. Um, again, I, I don't want to blame everything on Larry Lessig himself, but there was a generation of Lessigs, Chris Anderson, and a number of other people, all articulating this philosophy of disruption being a good, uh, mm -hmm. all opposed to paid content, all mm -hmm. believing that we were on the verge of some sort of digital utopia. They've all disappeared now. Lessig now deals with politics. To what extent do you think that, if you like, that Web 1.0 generation of intellectual uh, pioneers, of idealists, the Lessigs and the Andersons of the world, how much... How much accountability do you think they have for the deep hole we find ourselves in? I wouldn't want to pin it on, on either the two individuals or even necessarily to have a kind of, um, you know, broader based criticism, because it's not only the Andersons or the Lessigs, but, you know, one of the other people we talk about as creating that hacker ethos, that libertarian sensibility, which for what it's worth, I don't know if Anderson or Lessig share. Um, the John Perry Barlows of the world, who right. in 1996 yeah. put up the Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace. And um, that type of digital utopianism, that and that goes back to some of these 60s countercultural roots. My, right. my colleague at Stanford, Fred Turner, Fred has a fantastic book yeah. called Counterculture to Cyberculture. That traces it's a must-read. Fred's an old friend of mine. It's a, tr it's a classic, which, yes. which traces the counterculture and... Uh, the tech community, um, there's J John Perry Barlow features very strongly in that book too. And the kind of romantic vision that came along with these extraordinary technical tools that could be both personally liberating and then also could spread democracy. Uh, and and I don't begrudge anybody the I idealistic aspirations or dreams they might have about what seems indeed like a wondrous new technology. And you know, part of the, the basic argument of our book, the system error book, is that we're now exiting, call it a 25-year-long era, in which was marked by the opening of digital utopianism or digital optimism, and now is closing with the tech lash and digital skepticism or dystopianism. And the basic spirit of this book is we don't need a polemical orientation to Silicon Valley or big tech. What we need is a bigger picture system of thinking, not, not focusing on individuals, not focusing on how good or bad Mark Zuckerberg is or how much blame Larry Lessig or other early <laughs> digital utopians 
should shoulder, but rather we see the extraordinary benefits that these digital tools and platforms can bring. And also now very clearly some of the very uh, you know, damaging harms that they facilitate and impose. The and zeit, so, so as you say, Rob, that the zeitgeist has shifted. Um, you and your fellow authors are, are teaching this stuff at Stanford, Harvard. Uh, uh, there's a similar group of academics. You're teaching it with uh, four other people, a, a computer science ethics class, three of, of the people are, are, are part of the book. But I'm curious, again, not wishing to personalize this. I mean, back in 2013, Dave Eggers, for example, mm -hmm. wrote a book, The Circle, which pretty much, it, it was a dystopian novel, but pretty much mirrors what you're arguing. Stanford is or was the epicenter of this digital libertarianism. What took you so long? Why, why is this book coming out in 2021 and not in 2014 or 2015? Uh, I, that's a fair question. And, you know, part of what we acknowledge in, you know, in, in perhaps less so in the book, because maybe it's of less interest to a general reader, but certainly locally here in Silicon Valley, just as you say, Stanford bears more responsibility for, for the good and the bad of Silicon Valley and big tech. Um, it's where not merely so many of the technologists and founders have been educated, but also where the ecosystem permeates the whole university. The way, you know, the ways in which venture capitalists come onto campus as, as lecturers, in which the computer science department people are routinely taking a few years off to go found a company themselves and then come back to continue teaching. Um, it's woven in, in certain respects, to the fabric of the university. It's worse than that, though. You, you, you came up with a book um, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, actually yeah. it was last year, just giving why philanthropy is failing democracy and how it can do better. I don't know how many billions of dollars Stanford has got from tech. Many. There's, That's a, many. there's a degree of accountability. I'm interested in your take on the impact of tech on philanthropy, but should Stanford, in the way in which uh, some institutions have become accountable for taking money from increasingly morally dodgy, ethically dodgy companies, should, should Stanford be a little bit more accountable? Should they apologize? Uh, well, if you want to talk about philanthropy, whether it comes from the tech community or not, I have a whole bunch of thoughts there about what we could just label dirty Well, well let's money. talk about that. Next, but but but, yep. but what about but, Stanford? Yeah, you teach there, so you have to be a little careful. But but well, well, is no, there I'm a degree of institutional accountability here? Here's what I, here's what I'll say about why um, the book wasn't written in 2014 or 2015, or at least um, where it, uh, it wasn't a, something that I was thinking of in 2014 or 15. Um, what happened on Stanford's campus that that the three of us who have written the book observed and that anyone who spent time on Stanford's campus in the past decade would recognize is that there's been a great migration of undergraduate students away from the humanities and social sciences over to the School of Engineering, majoring in computer science in record numbers. And the computer science major has become almost the, the, the you know, the, the um, the kind of thing which you it seems like you're silly not to do. Uh, the intro to computer science class enrolls more than 90% of undergraduates. And, and my co-author, Maron Sahami, who, who is responsible for having created the current version of that intro course and does it in an extraordinary way, he's a fantastic teacher. He, and here's a stat which I find incredible. 
He has personally instructed more than 60% or so of the past decade of Stanford undergraduates in part. Oh my God. Well, I'm going to interview him next uh, in a couple yeah. of weeks. He's, we can blame him for everything then. Uh, and uh, some of the, some of the good as well. Uh, no, I'm and, joking, obviously. Yes, of but... course. Uh, but so on campus, it, it felt like, you know, Stanford's identity is as, as a liberal arts experience and, and, the, and a liberal arts experience expansively understood that includes studying science and, and gaining technical skills or, you know, engineering school on campus. But suddenly the undergraduates were shifting and voting with their feet. And so um, that was part of what drew, drew the three of us together. Um, we'd like to try to teach a class which brings the ethical frameworks the social scientific and policy frameworks and the technical frameworks to bear in a single class. And the class- And in a single book, of course. In uh, a single book, that's right. System error. Briefly, um, this is not about your your your, uh, your 2020 book, Just Giving, but how does this, this excessive wealth in Silicon Valley, the billions of billions of dollars, which are now you know, uh, owned by the Zuckerbergs and the Reed Hoffmans and the Peter Thiels of the world, how is this uh, playing out in terms of the problematic impact of philanthropy on democracy itself? Yeah, if you had to draw a kind of through line between my 20, 2018 book, Just Giving, about philanthropy and at least my contribution to this new book, System Error, it's that philanthropists and in the, this current case, technologists are exercising a large form of power uh, on and over people in a democratic society. And um, sometimes they're one and the same people, of course. You make a ton of money in technology and then you become a philanthropist as well. And so it becomes another way to exercise um, um, power of a certain kind, albeit now as a kind of do-gooder. And, and part of what the, you know, the connection between the two books happens to be is that no matter how um, idealistic we might become about the technocratic aspects of either wealthy people or, or technologists through their products and services, um, they need to be held in certain respects um, 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 to account with some countervailing power in certain respects or at a bare minimum, far greater transparency about how the, the, how the power operates. And uh, we live in a moment in which we, in philanthropy, we tend to celebrate our great philanthropists rather than scrutinize them. Although maybe that's changing a bit uh, with the Sacklers, for example, or Anand Girdas' book, Winners Take All. And for a long time, we celebrated the disruptors and the great entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, and that's changing too. And it's time that the social sentiments changed on both counts so that we can examine the power that's being wielded over us and decide whether it's being wielded for good for ill or for something more complicated, which is almost always the actual case. Yeah, it's a really important message, Rob, you're, you're putting out in the book and in this conversation. And, 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 I, and I respect you for doing it because I know there are still people who very much cling to this ideology. Uh, the end of the book, it, it comes with warnings about the future of democracy. Yeah. Um, and, and one company that you raise the alarm on, I think, at the end of the book is one called OpenAI. Um, why are companies like uh, OpenAI potentially damaging to American democracy? 
Well, OpenAI is just one version in the last chapter of the book begins with this, what you could call a frontier technology. These large language models or foundation models um, um, that create text. Um, and so OpenAI created this, this thing called GPT-2 and then GPT-3. And now there's a race afoot within um, both startups and in big tech to develop ever more powerful language models as a kind of race towards the potential creation of artificial general intelligence, um, something that would you know, potentially be radically transformative in a short amount of time. And um, most people are barely aware of the capacities of GPT-2 or GPT-3. And so OpenAI created initially as a, as a kind of very strange hybrid for-profit but social benefit company and then licensed licensed its um, product GPT-3 to Microsoft. A whole bunch of people left the, left the company and went off to found a new startup called Anthropic. That's a B corporation. So you see the kind of social vision that's partly intended to be baked into the corporate form. But as I say, barely any public discussion about these kinds of things. And the 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 you know the, the GPT three is a, a, a wondrous tool, not an not an all knowing or you know um, um, perfect uh, thing. Um, one of the things I've done for the book recently is I I I, I asked GPT three to complete uh, some blurbs uh, for System Error, and um, there we have a little you know a couple slides that I could send you that you know. But it's should. the same. Uh, it's, uh... It's the same characters, Rob, who are playing this game. Yeah, that's true. Uh, we, 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 we kicked off with some stuff about um, uh, Joshua Browder and uh, Aaron Schwartz. It's no coincidence that uh, OpenAI is founded by Elon Musk. Everybody knows him. And Sam Altman. Altman mm -hmm. was um, uh, Paul Graham's co-founder or certainly the CEO of Y Combinator. Um, and he is the CEO of OpenAI. Altman is still a hero in Silicon Valley. I think he's associated somehow with, with Stanford. He was probably educated there. He was just on the uh, Ezra Klein, the New York Times show. Uh, he's still putting out stuff like Moore's Law for Everything, in which he talks about the profound socioeconomic change that's coming and talks about structural shifts. At what point? Do we need to make, I mean, Browder is small fry, Schwartz is no longer around. At what point do we need to make people like Altman, who remains a hero, uh, a multi-billionaire in Silicon Valley, to what point do we need to make them more accountable? Yeah, well, now, ur urgently. And, and again, the, the issue from my point of view is less about any single individual. I don't know Sam Altman. I don't know if he's a good or bad person or has well, good or bad. Well, he's a good. I mean, all these people seem good and they're always talking about benefiting Possibly. humanity. And yes. coincidentally, they make billions of dollars at the same time. And then when it comes down to okay. it, as, as you warn us about open AI, they're a danger to democracy. That's the key for me. Is I would like to to you know have a more fulsome conversation with the Sam Altmans uh, of the world, the Elon Musks of the world, uh, about what type of value do they attach to dem democracy as itself a kind of technological design for political life, democratic institutions as a distinctively fair and valuable form of collective decision making. 
part of what I worry about in the current moment is that Silicon Valley's dreams of disruption have given extraordinary power to a relatively small number of individuals, not an especially diverse and representative group of Certainly. individuals. They all seem to be men, and they all seem to have graduated or dropped out of Stanford. And, and the typical kind of thing, this goes with the libertarian ideology, is that they complain about the inefficiencies of government, and they wish to do something that optimizes the creation of good things. And yeah. the open question from my point of view is, where does democracy fit in? It, 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 there's a, a small you know, passage in, in the, at the end of the first chapter, which sums this up for me at a, at, a, at a dinner that I was at, in which the question that was raised was about uh, you know, how could we create an environment which would maximize or optimize the progress of science and technology? And as the discussion you know, wove on, um, I raised my hand and asked at a certain point, well, is this going to be a democratic society? How are we yeah. governing this place? And the answer was pretty quick from a lot of people at the table. It had to do with you know, democracy slows things down. It holds us back. And, yeah. and what we need now is progress. And, and that ideology is common within Silicon Valley. You're, you're a, you're a, you teach political philosophy. To what extent can we trace all this back to Bentham? And their extension of his utilitarianism and, and that great passion with quantification. And again, not mm -hmm. un not uncoincidentally, Jeremy Bentham, the late uh, late eighteenth, early nineteenth century English founder of utilitarianism, invented yes. the notion of the panopticon, which, um, as uh, as we all know now, we are drifting into the age of surveillance capitalism. Right. So I would agree that that Bentham and then a bit later, John Stuart Mills, who systematized the idea, the moral philosophy of utilitarianism, that's um, certainly a kind of either um, committed uh, background worldview of many te technologists or maybe just the implicit um, worldview of many of them. But if we're digging deep into political philosophy, you can actually go back much further for kind of, you know, mm -hmm. visions this might mean. I would start with Plato. Who thought we always get back to Plato, don't we? Especially in political philosophy. That's right. Well, you know, the basic idea in the Republic was that the, the leaders of the ideal society should be the philosophers who are the wisest. And instead of philosophers these days who are on the social margins at best, um, it's technologists. And, and there's just, we substituted technologists as the wisest amongst us for philosophers. And if you're wise and you've got great ideas about improving the world, why do we need democracy? It seems to hold us back. Um, so th these kinds of technocratic or you know, um, starry-eyed visions of looking to the wisest amongst us um, set democracy entirely to the side. And, and uh, well, no surprise that I want to make a vigorous argument on behalf of democracy um, in order that um, yeah. in the geopolitical context of the world today, uh, we see democracy um, rejuvenate itself and, in fact, potentially spread more widely across the world. Let's end on a positive note, Rob. Um, I don't think it's any coincidence that the three people you pick out or three of the people you pick out at the end who are trying to fix all this stuff are all women. You've already mentioned um, Audrey Tang, the, yeah. uh, uh, the Taiwanese digital minister, who's a remarkable uh, woman. Uh, I'd actually like to get her on the show. You also touch on Lena Khan and, of course, Margaret Vestager, the, um, the, the commissioner in the EU who is the first person to really take on 
big tech. Is it any coincidence that Tang and, and Khan and Vestager are all women? I don't think so. And we, we point in the book as well to the, the, the research work as well as some of the public, uh, public intellectual work of, of people um, like Joy Bolamwini, uh, um, who was you know, behind um, Gender Shades and, and this new documentary um, that reveals how facial recognition often misrecognizes black and brown faces. Um, and the basic spirit of the idea here is that we shouldn't be surprised that it's women or, or people from uh, minority communities um, that are bringing to public light um, some of the problems with big tech because big tech now has so much power, it, it affects marginalized communities. And it's oftentimes in ways that, you know, in the most charitable of circumstances, the founders of these companies didn't intend. But of course, they weren't trying to monitor um, whether or not the technologies had these um, harmful effects because they were initially looking for great scale and figure out these problems later. So um, it, it doesn't surprise me at all that some of the the earliest and, and most important people um, calling foul on big tech or, or on particular products are women or people, people from um, minority communities. Well, better late than never. Three distinguished professors at Stanford, uh, Rob Reich, uh, Mehran Sahami, Jeremy Weinstein. Uh, Sahami and Weinstein are going to be on the show in a couple of weeks have recognized, I don't know if it's their error or Stanford's error or Silicon Valley's error, but it's a really important and interesting and coherent and persuasive book. Congratulations, uh, Rob. What else should people be reading? I know you're in your, um, in your home just, uh, just uh, north of, of Palo Alto and, and uh, in Redwood City in, in, right. in, in the peninsula. What else should people be reading in these strange times in addition to your new book, System Error? Yeah, uh, well, I just finished a book that came out uh, over the summer um, called um, um, "Better, T Better, T uh, Better to Have Gone" um, by Akash Kapoor. Um, it is about this utopian community. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah Better to Have go. Gone: Love, Death, and the Quest for Utopia in Auroraville. Amash yeah, it's about this utopian community in India. And actually, it bears a connection to what we've just been talking about. Um, utopians uh, abound among us across history. And the idea of founding a revolutionary community that would usher in an era of greater enlightenment and social progress. And part of this, this book is a, a tender and, and understanding look because of some personal connections the author has to the very community of Oroville but then seeing where it goes wrong. Utopia always seems to go wrong in part because you invest the leaders with extraordinary power. Um, if, you, if you need to make an omelet um, that will improve the world, you have to crack some eggs to get it done. And, and um, utopianism, utopianism, I would say, is a partly dangerous philosophy in the first place. So that's the, that's the first book. I think it's a fantastic read, a first person exploration of, of this desire for utopia. And the, the second book, which you briefly flashed on the screen there, is by a philosopher named Damia Srinivasan, who is now at Oxford. Um, she, she has this new book coming out in two weeks called The Right to Sex. It's a collection of essays on feminism in the 21st century. She's just a fantastic philosopher who is, I think, engaging some of the most central questions of, of our moment with respect to um, um, how to think about uh, the different waves of feminism over the course of, of the past 30 or 40 years, 
and pointing pointing the way forward in in extremely accessible prose with with really provocative arguments. Do you know her? Uh, I've met her briefly once or twice, but she's got one of these positions now at All Souls College at, at Oxford. Um, uh, and uh, I, I've read a couple of the essays which have come out in, in yeah. other form, but um, the book's out in two weeks. Well, the new All Souls, the 21st century All Souls is Stanford University, three <laughs> authors, but all teachers are all professors at Stanford. System Era, where big tech went wrong and how we can reboot. Uh, one of the authors... Um, uh, Rob uh, Rob Reich uh, is a political philosopher. Wonderful conversation, Rob. I'm looking forward to talking to your other uh, your, your co-authors of the book uh, in a couple of weeks. But congratulations on the book. Really interesting to talk to you. I appreciate your honesty, your willingness to to take some accountability for what's gone wrong and for pointing us in the right direction. So thank you again. Keep well, and we'll talk again in the not too distant future. Thanks very much.